episode 21 of the Science Communication Accelerator podcast. Today on social media trends in science and academia with the Director of Communication and Strategy at Wissenschaft im Dialog, Rebecca Winkels. Let's go. The most important thing and the most important thing for social media as a mean of science communication and maybe the biggest strength is that it actually allows researchers to communicate proactively. This is the second episode that I recorded in October in Berlin and I'm only putting it out now because I've thought it's not a great idea to have two people from the same organization very shortly behind each other. But as the first episode was not great in terms of sound quality, this also applies to the second one because I had forgotten to bring my second microphone and had to buy a new one in the morning and it wasn't really a great uh, microphone and I didn't really know how to handle it. So I'm sorry, the quality is not 100%. It's maybe 85 or 90. It's still good enough for a good listen, but I just want to warn you. Um, but I hope that you stay with this episode and uh, that you enjoy it and that you learn something from it. The topic of this episode is about the trends and current trends in digital science communication. And I have a guest who actually knows a lot about that specific topic. So I'm really happy that she's actually here and joining me for this podcast episode. She's the Director of Communication and Strategy at Wissenschaft im Dialog. Uh, some weeks ago, you've already listened to one of her colleagues, Markus Weiskopf, and she's now yeah, the head, of, uh, the head of Communication and Strategy. So welcome to the podcast, Rebecca Winkels. Hi, lovely to be here. <laughs> Super. It's really good to have you here because you are one of the key people, I feel, in the German uh, science communication system that actually really deals with Yeah, with the new stuff that's actually happening and with the trends and the yeah the digital part of the science communication. So I'm really happy to have you here on board. To give the audience a little bit of an idea who you are, would you mind to just, you know, give your little speech, your little bio, and maybe also tell me why you actually get up in the morning. Thank you so much uh, for those really lovely words of introduction. <laughs> I'm feeling very flattered now. Um, uh, yeah, my name is Rebecca. I'm... Uh, as you said, currently working as the Director of Communications and Strategy at Wissenschaft im Dialog. I've um, once upon a time been a biology student and did a bachelor's degree in biology and um, then basically decided I care much more about communicating science than I care about um, actually standing in a lab. Uh, so I switched to science journalism and did a master's degree in science journalism in London and then moved on to become a science communicator, uh, first of all working for uh, various, in, or working in various positions within the Helmholtz Association and then I came to Wissenschaft im Dialog and have been working here for four years now. Um, first as a project lead and now I've overtaken kind of the job of the overall communications yeah. and so I really I'm really passionate about talking about science I'm really passionate about digital science communication and what basically gets me up in the morning is that I think there's a lot of change outside and we see a lot of changing communications environments and I love the idea of helping people to navigate those uh, new environments and to find their way in those environments. Oh, yeah, I think you just underlined actually why why you're uh, why you're worthy of joining in this podcast right now. It's just it's just beautiful listening to you. Um, all this, yeah. 
all this passion that you actually have. And I also like to listen to, to hear your very British dialect, actually, or like accent <laughs> that, you, that you probably acquired uh, during your time in London. Uh, that's really nice. So let's dive right in. Rebecca, if you, are th if you think about the, the current state of science communication in Germany, not just digital science communication, but all together, could you give me a little bit of a mapping out of what's currently What's happening? How, how has it been developing in the last five years? What's happening right now? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a relatively new field and it's professionalized massively in the last few years. Mm. And like in the, in the maybe last 10 years, it professionalized, it um, differentiated itself. So there's loads of different actors now, loads of different stakeholders within it. So I think all that works very well, but we had all that ch change while there was a massive change in the means we communicate with and in the means communication works these days. So digitalization, which was happening while science communication become, became a professional field, kind of changed the entire ground basis for communication mm. and thus for science communication. So we've been in a very dynamic field for the last 10 years. And I think we've done a few things very well. Um, there's a lot of space for improvement, <laughs> obviously. Um, but I think overall, we are at a state where we have the means and the necessary environment for good science communication. Um, it is now upon us and upon the system to actually say, change something for the better and um, get started with the really urgent problems we have today. Yeah, when you just you just mentioned that there has been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of new positive development and also this room would you would you mind to just quickly elaborate maybe with some examples that you have in mind what went well and where there is room or where you see room for improvement yeah i think we we basically created new formats in the last few years that were really good and that work really well though we still at the same time don't know enough about how those formats actually work or mm. what they do to the target groups we have. So mm. while that whole dynamic of creating new formats and being creative in that way and finding new ways and trying out new things mm. worked really well. And I think that's there's a lot of good formats out there. Mm. We still haven't caught up with what which format actually achieves with this target group it, it addresses mm. so that's one of the examples where there's good mm. and bad in mm. the same topic i also think that um we actually have achieved that or i don't know if we have actually if it's our our claim to make but <laughs> who's us though <laughs> yeah and who's us um but i think science communication overall has grown as a field which is a good thing and it's also um become more maybe popular is not the right word, but more accepted within the scientific community as something we need to do and we need to take serious as scientists as mm. well. And so I think that is a very positive situation, seeing mm. new young people who are actually using digital media to communicate their own science. That's the best thing that is there. Mm. Um, and once again, there's also some people not doing it that well and a need for more acknowledgement within the scientific mm. community and also yeah maybe some some train some more training for younger people who need mm. to learn about um the roles they have in science communication mm. you just mentioned that you see quite a lot of like young researchers who also spend some time on science communication maybe even with like these new 
digital channels. Um, whom do you envision, or in, in a perfect world, from your perspective, who would be the ones who actually communicate science? Yeah, I think it would be scientists. So I think I, I as someone who does professional communication, mm. I see my own role as someone who creates rooms and areas mm. and connection points for science communication. Mm. And then we have the scientists who actually communicate the science. That mm. doesn't matter if they are from MINT subjects or, um, or social science. All mm. of those, all scientists need to communicate. Mm. Not every single one of them, but all the areas of science. Yeah. And I think um, it is mainly, the main reason for that being their task is they, they are the authentic voice for science. So yeah. they can talk about methods, about values, about processes of science much better than I, as someone who's not working in mm. the scientific field, can. Mm. But of course, they need support. It's nothing they should be doing on top of their yeah. excellent research. How can we, from your perspective, how can we build that support system? Because, you know, I've worked eight years at Fraunhofer and I work at a university and You can do it if you want to do it, but that's mainly in your free time. And it's, you know, what counts are the citations and the Hirsch Index and all that stuff. So um, maybe the question would be, how can we incentivize that better? And do you see some, maybe before we go into these other trends, but do you see a trend there as well that there's more appreciation or is that lacking from your perspective? There's at least more talk about appreciation. <laughs> Maybe it <laughs> starts with talking. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I think it starts with talking about it. I yeah. think that is something that is there more, and we're mm -hmm. seeing that in, in every position paper we've read in the couple, last couple of years on how to improve science communication. Yeah. That aspect of more acknowledgement and more incentives yeah. has come up, which mm -hmm. is a good thing and a good sign that something is going to change eventually. Yeah. So I think that is there. I think for now it's mostly talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm hopeful that that will change. And I think incentives don't need to be like, it doesn't need to be more money for scientists communicating or something. It just needs to be acknowledged that science communication and being good at it is actually a good thing. Mm -hmm. And is also maybe helpful to your career mm -hmm. or at least a big part of your career. Mm -hmm. And so I think every system that works in a way that supports scientists in their communication effort by giving them more time for it, by making, by, by giving them a support system if things go wrong, by mm. acknowledging their communication efforts as something good and something valuable. I think all the ideas that do that help and yeah. will be helpful. Mm. I don't think it's it for a scientist, it's about um, this in, you get this many points for your science communication efforts. You shouldn't force people, mm. but you shouldn't hinder them. And in the mm. past, we've often hindered scientists um, in their communication of. How, how did, why, why is that? How did we manage that? We as a science community, community or yeah. science universe? Yeah, we, we in the science. I mean, when you, when you look back uh, maybe five or ten years, you, you often hear people saying like, oh, so you're communicating your science to the general public or to some mm. parts of the public. Mm. Why would you so do that? Why would you do that? You're not <laughs> concentrating on your research. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you know that yourself. Mm. That's utter bullshit. I'm <laughs> <laughs> swearing starting in the podcast. <laughs> I mean, it was friendly English swearing, so I think you can leave it in. <laughs> But yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's not true. Like sci scientists who communicate are not 
not doing their science. Mm -hmm. Most most of the people who I know... I feel actually when you communicate your science, you actually build network a lot and you actually build opportunities for other projects, for other papers, for all that kind of stuff as well. So it's And obviously the question as well is, who is your target group? If it's really disengaged people, then that might not directly pay off. But if it's just... If you put it on Twitter or on LinkedIn or whatever, then it might reach some people that you, that really can do something with it, but it also just increases your own visibility and then you're invited to talks and whatever, like over yeah. the long term. So, yeah, I yeah. think that's a debated thing that some people think it's really bad and some people actually appreciate it and see it that it's actually giving a lot of opportunity. Yeah, it also helps you build skills. I mm. mean, being able to, to communicate with uh, young children, for example, about science mm. helps you with teaching. For sure. It helps you with talking to colleagues who are not from your actual field of expertise. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, they are scientists, they're smart, they want to understand you, but you might be using a different language because you're mm -hmm. from different fields. And mm -hmm. so your coll collaborations get better by being a good communicator. Have you ever, like, you're, you're uh, can I say, hang out a lot <laughs> in the science field in Germany? Have you ever seen, like, an a job ad or something where it says says something about outreach and science communication as if as like as if it's like helpful for that position or if it's appreciated or is that still are we still too nascent in that emerging phase than yeah. you've seen that so far i haven't really seen seen that in a job advert i think it is more about the funding mechanisms now want you to to at least show mm. which kinds of communications you're going to use to to foster your research yeah. or to help with your research or help promote your research. So I think we're seeing a little bit of change there. The dream would be, like, at least from my view, it would be really helpful if um, in a job advert it would actually say, mm. so what are your science communication skills mm. and mm. present them, please. Yeah. How do you how do you see that in comparison or in relation to this new trend that it's in Germany is called Ich bin Hanna, which um, which which it's not all about that, but partly about it that there is that that a lot of scientists have short term contracts and there's a lot of things that are asked of them. And you know, I'm I'm a big supporter of science communication. I love it, you know, and I think it's super important. But I could also see that people who have short term contracts um, then apply to particular positions and then these ads say you have to do this 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 and science communication if that i was just I, it's just curious if you have some thoughts about it but wouldn't that like or could you see that this actually increases the pressure on people who work in the scientific uh, universe again um, so yes. that would also have a negative impact potentially on, on mental health for example yes definitely um and therefore it it can't be you need to be able to do all those things mm. You need to, I mean, um, it has to be something where it's, hey, it's great if you're a science communicator mm. and therefore maybe you don't necessarily love teaching as much, mm. which is an odd comparison. Cause anyway, probably like, probably like both. <laughs> <laughs> but, but maybe maybe your lack in teaching experience can be um, less important if you do very well in science communication. It yeah. needs to be somehow balanced. I, yeah. I'm not an advocate for, for a system that just asks more and more and yeah. more and more of researchers. I just need. I just think we need to. We need, in general, need to massively improve the working conditions mm. of researchers mm. in all fields. I yeah. think, and one part of that is becoming more flexible in what skills are necessary for being a good 
scientists. Yeah. And I think science communication should be part of that skill set. Yeah. Not everyone has to be a science communicator. I don't believe that. But everyone who wants to do science communication should be able, able to do it. Yeah. And that's the important thing. And we need to enable people to make it happen. And that can only start within the institutions. We need the research institutions to actually promote science communication from within. But how can we how can we incentivize them to actually care? Because they get a lot of money, at least in Germany, they get it from the lender level, if, is, yep. if I'm not yep. confused. And I guess the money needs to be connected or there need to be certain requirements coming in with the money. And if that, like, I don't know, maybe I'm very conservative or maybe I'm just yeah. naive or whatever, but I'm thinking like people care where the money comes from in capitalist systems that we have. Um, do you, so do you see that this would need to change also that the requirements for the money need to change and only then organizations will Yes, I think change? so. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's what we're seeing. I think the tendencies we're now seeing is that more and more, more and more funding bodies are actually including science communication yeah. in their, in their, um, yeah, in their, in the in the ways you can apply for funding or something yeah. in their promotions for it. So, so that needs to change, and that is a huge part of it. I think, I think it would be a bit naive, almost the opposite way, to think that it's going to change from within well, without yeah, any yeah. any money trigger. Why would it? Yeah, and yeah, people yeah. just don't care. Probably. I mean, it should. There's good reasons to do science communication apart from money and your own personal visibility. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, um, yeah, money doesn't lie and money changes things. And yeah, yeah. But I think we are seeing that. I yeah. think we're well, seeing improvement. Cool. All right. So the name of this episode is Trends in Digital Science Communication. And so far, I just had the feeling we, we talked about the whole broad system. And I love that. So, <laughs> but for the people who actually joined in to actually learn about what's going on, um, maybe my, my next question will lead us more into that direction. So science communication can be online, can be offline. And I think there's, there's place for anything. And anything that works is good and fine. Um, however, this podcast is yeah more specifically on this this digital science communication science communication with social media because I feel that there's a lot of room for improvement uh, among research organizations. So my question to you would be, what do you currently see as trends in general science communication and maybe particularly with digital science communication? Yeah, I think I think one thing we are seeing is that finally people are not calling it new anymore, which is good. Mm. <laughs> 20 yeah. years into it, we've <laughs> dropped the new from social media. This, um, this, this internet thing, it's a fad. This internet thing, it's, it's going to stick, I think. Oh, really? Really? <laughs> not really sure, but I think it's going to stick. Um, and I think what we're seeing is we're seeing more and more channels actually being used for science communication. Mm -hmm. I think that's something... That's a good thing. Yeah, yeah that's a very good thing and more creative way as well. The most important thing and the most important thing for social media as a mean of science communication and maybe the biggest strength is that it actually allows researchers to communicate proactively. Mm -hmm. So with a lot of the other formats we have, you need someone who organizes the event mm. or organizes a science slam or something mm. and then you mm. can take part and those are great i love mm. those formats i mm. love offline formats but with the social media world it's science has been enabled to proactively on their own terms commute to communicate what they want to communicate about yeah. their science their experience in science and the scientific system and that is a great thing mm. um, because it's very direct it's very much without a filter and that's the biggest advantage social mm. media has 
very authentic, isn't it? It's very authentic, yeah. and we, we do see that as well. We see scientists taking over those channels on their own terms. We see people like Christian Drosten, who, yes, he does a podcast on... NDR, mm. but he also tweets. Mm. And so just for, for context, who's Christian Drosten? Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, just for people who, not <laughs> people who've not heard of Christian Drosten, <laughs> he's the um, most, um, yeah, maybe most recognized uh, virologist in Germany during the pandemic because he, he is actually doing research and has done research before on coronaviruses. And so he's a real expert and he had a fabulous podcast on, at the, on the NDR. Ara, which is one of our local um, radio stations. How do you call so it's it? Yeah, it's like the. Yeah, in, in Norway, I would say it's NRK. Here it's yeah, it's like the öffentlich rechtliche Fernsehanstalten. Yes. <laughs> so you could say public radio. Yeah, it's national public, public radio. National pa public radio, and he had a podcast on there, and he also was very prominent and um, active on Twitter yeah. and used Twitter to comment on studies, to comment on new results, mm. to uh, comment on government policies measurements, and policies mm. and everything. And I think that's something we are seeing more and more. And that's the proactive way I was talking about. Mm. So that we see that and that has a lot of a lot to do with the fact that people actually want to learn from other people and want to communicate with other people much more than they want to communicate with a organization. Mm. And I think that's another trend we are seeing in mm. social media communi communication, that it's getting more human again. We had some time where it was all flashy and very high-end content and video production and a lot of special effects. I think we're seeing that going back a bit mm. and seeing a lot of people wanting to have information firsthand, wanting to have live interviews, want to see what the people actually work and do. Mm. And I think that's very beneficial for science communication because it's always more important to talk about um, the things behind the results than only communicate yeah. the results. And yeah, yeah recently I had an episode about scientific storytelling and there Josh Ettinger, who was the guest on this podcast, also talked very much about like you, if you humanize science, yeah, research, then you give people actually the opportunity to hook onto you and then they are directly more engaged because they like people like people and people like stories of people. And this is very yeah, close to what you just issued there. Yeah, very much said. along the lines. Yeah. I think, yeah, and it's not about telling them that you yeah, that you cycle to work, but it's not necessarily <laughs> But it's about being a person. Yeah. Okay? yeah. And and making visible that mm. scientists are people and that science is diverse and it's not only done by I mean we have this image of old white men men in science which is I don't think that reflects what science is all about and so yeah social media has the power to change stuff in that direction yeah would you say that particular channels are being increasingly used is there something that you can or want to point out Yeah, I think, I mean, I mean, Twitter has always been science communications darling mm. and podcasts have as well. Mm. I think those two are very much the ones we always liked and always used. Yeah. I see a lot of great stuff coming up on Instagram. Mm. I think Instagram is doing like helping itself by offering so many different opportunities to actually use different formats. So you can do stories, you can do reels, you can do simple blog posts or feed posts. And I think in corporate videos and stuff like that. So I think Instagram, through that multifunctionality and through the very interesting target groups of people who are under 35, 
um, is very interesting for science communication. And I see a lot more coming up on Instagram and Instagram being used more for science communication. I think there's room for improvement still, but I think that's something we are seeing becoming more yeah. more dominant now. How do you see the role of TikTok, for example, in like in its negativity and its positivity in the science universe? Yeah, um, I think with with TikTok, talk it's a bit bit of a data security, data protection issue there, even more so than with a lot of other channels. Um, but as a as a tool per se, and the things you can do with it. I see huge promise um, mm. for science communication on, on TikTok. And we do see, um, at least internationally, we do see a lot of uh, people trying their, trying to work TikTok for science communication. And we even see that in Germany, um, where I obviously work. Um, and I think in the US, we have a few people who do very good um, sex education, for example, on TikTok. And that actually works. And so I think there's the, with TikTok, it's a bit of a, yeah, it's a bit of a tricky situation to use it as an institution because yeah. of the data issues. Um, but as a tool, I mean, it's, it's so much fun. Mm. <laughs> I like getting lost in it, to be honest. No, for sure. I think their, their algorithm is really good and they really show you what you like yeah. and they really, yeah, they cater it really particularly to specific people. But that also means your content needs to be really good, really hooking, really engaging. If it's not, you're very easily drowned uh, as far as I understand the platform so far. Yeah, yeah, I think that's my understanding yeah. too. Yeah, you have to be really good yeah. to do it. Um, yeah. It's a bit like... But on the other hand, it's like you will never get good if you don't start, isn't it? Yeah. So it's like it's with anything else. If you, you know, When we were born, we weren't able to drive a car. Now it's 20 or 18 or 16 in the States. Everyone is at least able or can drive a car. So that's maybe the same thing. That's suggesting I can drive a car. <laughs> but you don't have a driver's license. Oh, I do have a license. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure I shouldn't drive though. <laughs> maybe not in Berlin. <laughs> no, but I see, I see your point. And I think that's very true for all social media channels. Yeah. I think um, trial and error with a sort of a bit of thinking and, and reflecting about who you are and what your role in communications is. Yeah. Um, trying new things is always worth it. And you can drop things again as well. It's if okay. you see it's not working. Yeah, and making mistakes is super okay. And making it happens mistakes to all of super us. super okay, yes. <laughs> Anything um, that's new and innovative can only... Oh, yeah. yeah. We've all done it. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. Um, Rebecca, you mentioned twice the role of organizations in science communication. And you said, if, if I'm correct, if I understood you correctly, that it's more towards humanizing again. It's for specific researchers. And I think what you just said now was, I felt, okay, if I'm a researcher, I felt like empowered by you to just start it because it's about the people, it's about the scientists. But if you're a research organization, and yes, you might have an Instagram account with 10 of 20 or I don't know, 15,000 followers because you're a large university, which is probably, I'm not saying easy, but it's, it's okay to do that. How, like from what you've seen in the space, how would you navigate such an account? What can you do on such an account as an organization um, in order to in increase engagement and maybe communicate science and to educate? Yeah, I think I think um, just because um, I think the human side plays a role, that doesn't mean that an organization can't use the human side. Mm. I mean, I think there's huge potential in, for example, Instagram takeovers. Mm. So giving... What is it? Giving your... Giving someone the university's account who works as a researcher there and following them through their day, for example. 
is a great way of communicating science and about showing what's happening at your university. If that person is a decent advocate for your university, yeah. it's much better than if I, the communicator, walks through the university and says, oh, here are scientists, here are scientists, great, <laughs> let's do. make some pictures. Mm. So that's not working. Mm. But like actually empowering others to use your account to promote science, that's very mm. well worth it. I think there's also a, a very visual hook on Instagram, obviously. Mm. So anything, any great visualization of science you mm. have, that works very well. So I don't think that university cities or other research organizations shouldn't use those channels. They can use mm. them in a more human way. I think mm. I think we're a bit sick of those um, gloomy um, quote cards maybe mm. and we mm. don't want the 500,000 um, image video of a company anymore. Yeah. But yeah. for a like you can do great communication from behind the scenes of your university yeah. on that account and that yeah. promotes science very well i think yeah no i like that that approach and i think your idea of these takeovers can be very valid because yeah that just gives people the opportunity to see people who work in that organization yes. yeah. and i mean an, a good organization lives off there any good organization lives of their people, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, not totally, totally yeah, agree. People are the organization yeah. and yeah. what makes them, maybe unless you build cars, then probably put the cars on the front. But <laughs> <laughs> Anything that's like, not any any knowledge organization lives of the people. No, I'm, I'm, I totally agree with that with you. I recently had a chat with someone uh, who uh, runs a media department at a large university. I'm not going to say which, but it, does all, it also doesn't matter. And he said that now they they implemented a new strategy and they go social first. Very good. May, which I was like, okay, what does that even mean? But it sounds really intriguing, but I was like, what does that even mean? And, um, and he said he, he won't have a podcast episode with me up until the end of 2022, because then he can tell if it works. <laughs> and, uh, so, so, we'll, so everyone who's listening to this podcast right now, uh, yeah, tune in maybe in a year ago if you're interested in that. It'll, it'll come eventually, but he just wants to try it out with his team before really saying it was good or right or whatever. And they say they have to do a lot of fine tuning. So... But in, like this is this is I feel an example of very straightforward in like really embracing all the social media stuff. And then I've been in contact with other people who really still appreciate the press release and send out press releases and are not or at least have room or potential for being better at yeah video making and all these other new channels. So where do you see <laughs> where do you where are we going or like what can we like why would it make sense to go? social first for example yeah i think it makes sense to go social first because of the spread of social media mm. i mean the amount of people you re reach on social media if you do a good job mm. is incredible mm. i mean what my for example does with my lab she's one of the best german youtubers mm. um science youtubers she reaches so many people through her videos. Yeah. That is incredible. A press release is not going to get that reach anymore. Mm. And especially if you want to reach young audiences, mm. social first mm. is a very good strategy. Yeah. Of course, there's other reasons to say, well, there's a need for us to reach older people yeah. and older generations. And therefore, we need offline formats. Mm. So I don't think, I don't think it's, it's either or. I think it's an approach of um, thinking 
about your target group really, really carefully mm. and then making the choice. Who do I really want to reach and which news channels are those people using? So for me, it's social first is a mindset, mm. which I like, mm. but then, of course, I'm... I mean, I do digital communication. <laughs> that's what you and, like. <laughs> and that's what, what you, I like in that's general. That's what you signed up for. Kind of, kind of fits my age group as well. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, I understand the mindset. But for me, it would be more, if I could make a wish, it would be that in science communication in general, we always think target groups and aims first and mm. then choose the right channel for it. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. yeah. Now we've been talking about very much how great science uh, digital channels are and there is ups and downs and there is light and shadow and um, and I think it's also very important to actually acknowledge that. Um, so now my next two questions go a little bit more on, on the dark side of social media because when we were preparing this this episode, you and me, we were talking about um, if we if we want or if we think that's, that science communication should be done or at least partly should be done by researchers, what happens to these researchers when they are being exposed or they're exposing themselves, which can be great because it you know it, it can give you visibility. You people might offer you jobs or talks or whatever. So that's the good side. That's the light side, the bright side. But it also, when you're on Twitter, um, there's a lot of yeah people who don't like maybe your work or think you're wrong, and then you get exposed in a, in a rather negative way. So, uh, how can we how how can we make sure that people who actually have the guts to go out there, how can we make sure that they are not being hurt, or how can we protect them as research organizations? Yeah, I mean, we definitely need to protect them because it's I mean it's. I mean, we have so many cases now where that has happened mm. and it's a huge problem. So, yes, mm. a very, very big problem on social media mm. um, because it's a bit maybe one of the reasons is that it's a bit more anonymous. Yeah. So you're not going to yell at someone on the street, but if they don't see you, maybe you yell at them Yeah. in a way. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also easy if you're not using your, in German, we call it Klarname, yeah. your official name, but just a fake name on, on yeah. social media. Obviously. It just makes it easier. Yeah. Um, and I think we need to protect them. We need to provide or find ways to provide psychological help. We mm. need to train them in their engagement with those groups and in their engagement with criticism. Mm. Because we know from psychom research and from psychological research, we know how to deal with criticism mm. very well. And mm. we have principles. But very often when we're on in a one-on-one -on -one situation, we don't have those strategies available to us because we are emotional people and we care for our jobs. And that's good. And, that's yeah. good. <laughs> and it's not easy to talk to someone who criticizes yeah. you and maybe not in a very nice and complimentary mm. way, mm. way mm. or in a very factual way. Mm. So I think I think we need to make that information on how to deal with it more available and more present for people. Mm. We need to help them psychological as an institution or institutions need to be able to do that. I think there is a potential in providing um, providing lawyers as well or something like that mm. to providing um, help in that regard. Mm. Um, I think maybe even um, Maybe even institutions like Wissenschaft und Dialog could, could do their part in mm. providing help to, for researchers who need to deal with criticism and mm. in preparing them from, for those situations and also in preparing them 
in advance before they start going out and communicate mm. about what could happen and mm. what the pot potential yeah. criticism not, points not are. for scaring them is it but mm. for for getting them ready for it isn't for it? getting them ready yeah. i i don't mm. think we can afford them having so many negative experiences that they drop out of the communication game yeah, that would be sad because that would be sad and also as a society i don't think we can afford scientists mm. to stop communicating mm. or science to be yeah. not available in that those spaces because also the the gentleman that you actually mentioned 10 minutes ago christian drosten i remember some of his tweets kind of like really being fed up and a bit sad of all the hate that he had got and thinking about like yeah re yeah going back and like not communicating anymore and I think there was a lot of support for him, him as well but I think that was a very striking picture of even such a grown man who is a professor who knows what he's talking about even he would he, he's white and male and you know it's like even he gets so much hate and um, that, that it also yeah it just worked him out maybe and that he was just not willing to take it anymore and This is like, I feel, for example, I have a little bit of exposure, but not very much, but I don't get any hate. But I, I know so many women, so many people of color who it's, they get so much hate or much more hate. And I'm always feeling like, uh, like yeah, I feel really unhappy actually when I, when I hear these kind of stories, because that means that they might not be as willing to communicate their stuff. And that means we as a society don't, can't access it. And I think that's very sad. Yeah, and it's very sad. And I think it's very, uh, on a personal level, I can completely yeah. understand that someone wouldn't want to go out there. Why would you? Yeah, why, why would, would you? you? <laughs> like, <laughs> no. I don't like being yelled at. <laughs> Nowhere, by, by, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, I understand that. But I think we have a, as science institutions, we have, I mean, always a responsibility for our people and for protecting them and preparing them. And I don't mean from keeping them from communicating. I mean, preparing them for the circumstances and making all resources that we have available for them. Yeah, that's yeah. the, the right I think that's the yeah. most important yeah. point. Have you ever come across a course or something where that's actually being trained? Or is that, so are we just like daydreaming here? Or, or is there something already out there that you've come across? And if not, that's also maybe a sign, isn't it? Yeah, I think not not in the specific way I just yeah. said I would want to have that and need yeah. that. I think there's a lot of science communicators from universities, for example, or press people at universities who do media training and some of them incorporate shitstorms and trolls in, in those. I do that in my workshops every now and then we yeah. learn how to. So in those workshops, we play with each other because we troll ourselves Aye. and then discuss <laughs> how we would deal with that. Yeah. And I think um, Pierre Lamberti, for example, um, who is a researcher working on conspiracy myth, She has written a book that is very helpful as a resource for researchers. It's called Fake Facts. And Fake Facts. I th I'm definitely um, going to put it into the show notes. Yeah, put it in the show notes because it's, it's a good book and it's a very handy resource for how to deal with those yeah. uh, criticism. And, yeah. and but, by but writing, we need more, more help with that, I think. Yeah. And we haven't had enough available to researchers. Okay, uh, Rebecca, we're actually coming towards an end, um, but I like to ask my guests uh, in the end of how they actually envision the future of science communication. And so this question also goes to you. So how do you envision the evolution of science communication and how do you envision science communication in a perfect world to be, for example, in 10 years, in 2030? 
I think in a perfect world, we have recognition for scientists to communicate as a ground basis within the scientific system. I think we have managed to define the roles the different stakeholders in science communication play. Mm. And I also, on a personal note, hope that no one ever calls social media the new media anymore in about in a few years. <laughs> I, I just really hope that that stigma of being the new kid on the blog goes mm. away because it's harmful to the system to consider them being something special. We need to integrate them into our regular channels and we need to stop to be scared of social media. Yeah. And also I hope very much on a personal note, I hope that as a society, and that's bigger than just science communication, that we find a way to fix our debate forums and the styles we debate issues in, mm. because I think that's very important. Mm. And I think that in itself would be a topic that you could at least cover one or two episodes of uh, yeah, of the communication, Science Communication Accelerator podcast. So maybe eventually we'll, we'll uh, cover that as well. But for now, Rebecca, thanks a lot for joining me today for this podcast session and um, hope to see you again sometime in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was brilliant being here and <laughs> good luck with the rest of the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Folks, that's it for this episode of the Science Communication Accelerator podcast. I hope you learned something. I hope you had a little bit of fun and I hope that you take something away from this experience here. If you do, I would highly appreciate a five-star rating on Spotify or on iTunes. And yeah, you can always write me your questions if you have some on Instagram, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, or just on my email address, which is julius at psychomax.com. Bye-bye.